It was such an honor to have my friend Ernie Stevens back on the show, a 28-year veteran of law enforcement serving in a variety of different capacities. He was instrumental and a founding officer of his department's mental health unit in 2008. But you might know Ernie from something different. He is the primary subject in the two-time Emmy-nominated award-winning HBO documentary, Ernie and Joe, Crisis Cops. You have got to see this show. Ernie is an amazing individual, and he's giving back to the profession that was so good to him over the years, as well as the citizens. Ernie Stevens, next on the CJ Evolution Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Patrick here. Thank you for tuning into this show. We know you have many options, but thank you for tuning in. A big shout out to you. Yes, you the criminal justice professional, whatever you were doing, wherever you were at, thank you for doing it. And special thanks to all the first responders in Florida during this horrible hurricane that has hit the state, as well as prayers going out to everybody in the state of Florida. Please be safe. We are all thinking about you. Here's a real life story that affects 50% of all of us out there. It's called divorce. If you've gotten divorced and now you're struggling to pay your bills and your credit card debts are completely out of control, you need to call this special debt relief hotline right now. We help people with all kinds of money problems caused by different life challenges, a divorce, a job loss, even heavy medical bills. All these life events can sometimes financially stress you out and cause you to get out of control. We help people get their lives back by showing them ways to consolidate and reduce their debt, in some cases for a fraction of what they owe. If your credit card balances are more than $10,000, call us and learn how to reduce your credit card bills and monthly payments now. Here's our number. Paid for by Debt.com. Call now at 800-810-1569. 800-810-1569. 800-810-1569. That's 800-810-1569. What makes Shatterproof a very unique program is it's one of the only programs in the country that first responders can go to that is 100% all first responders. Everybody's in pretty bad shape when they get here. And then 30 days later, when you can see the transformation and the difference in people when they've had 30 days uh, of counseling, working with therapists, working with a psychiatrist, getting the neuro treatment, doing the breath therapy that's done here. The transformation that happens with the clients is really humbling to be able to work around and see because people are getting better here. And it just shows that there's a need for the first responder community to deal with behavioral health issues and take them seriously and offer treatment to people that may need help out there. They should be afforded the ability to come get help when they need help. It has gotten better, but we still have a long way to go. Thank you to my good friend, Jimmy Keefe, for that powerful message about FHE Health in Shatterproof. Jimmy, among other amazing staff members down in Florida, are here to help you get better. If you are suffering, you don't have to do it alone. Reach out to me today. I'm a national liaison for FHE Health. I can help you. 303-960-9819. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. I got my uh, friend, Ernie Stevens, back on the show. Welcome, brother. 
Man, it is glad. I'm <laughs> glad to be back. I really am. Thank you. I had, a, I had a blast last time. Yeah, it was it was great having you on, Ernie. And um, I, I, I was going to give an intro, but I, I want you to give an intro because you, you obviously a law enforcement professional many years. You've done some great things and you continue to do great things for the not only community, but for our brave men and women. Can you tell the listener, brother, who is Ernie Stevens? Oh, wow. Well, Ernie Stevens is a retired San Antonio police officer after 28 years. Uh, I worked uh, everything from uh, in normal, right, large capacity departments. You kind of bounce around a little bit until you find your niche. So I was I started out in patrol, uh, became a field training officer, was on the DWI task force, was on the gang unit. And then um, a course came through uh, our department in 2003 that I got signed up for on my day off and, and sent to. <laughs> that always yeah, happens. Called, yeah, called that's a, you know, that's a whole episode in itself, how that, how that crap happened. But, um, but it, it honestly changed my career path because yeah. it was a class on crisis intervention training. And that led to the um, development of a mental health unit, which San Nicole, Antonio you, never had. You found it. I mean, you're the one that was spearheaded that, right? I wasn't going to take no for an answer, man. I, I, <laughs> and they said, and they said no a lot. Uh, yeah. And um, so there's, you know, there's a story behind what happened there. There was a film made. Um, I retired in January of 2021, went to work for the Southwest Texas Regional Advisory Council, which kind of falls under the emergency department, the Department of Emergency Management in Texas. So we oversaw any type of emergency management mm -hmm. in 22 counties. And they brought me on to, to build uh, sustainable mental health teams, co-responder teams uh, between law enforcement, local mental health authorities to provide an alternative response. And then just in August, I came over as the um, division director, deputy division director for the council of state governments of law enforcement. So now I've got a, a, a huge reach of all 50 states of any law enforcement agency that's looking to partner with the Bureau of Justice Assistance for grant funding to build these types of sustainable uh, mental health co-responder units to provide an alternative response yeah. for people that call for a mental health crisis. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, and thank you for all your work, brother. Thank you for your service. And, you know, you and I, you know, we started a long time ago uh, in the, in this career and it's, it's always amazing to me how, how it just kind of progressed throughout the years where we would get you probably, I mean, you were in a much larger agency, but you would get a couple calls for people, and mental health crisis, maybe a week. Now it's like every day, you know, officers are going to these types of calls. Um, I mean, do you, do you see an end in sight? I mean, I, maybe that's kind of a dumb question, but I mean, do you think it's, it's going to slow down or you think it's just going to kind of go out on the track it is? Um, I, I think, wow, that's a good question. I've never been asked that. I, I don't see it's not, it's not going to go away. Right. Yeah. We can't just make bipolar disorder go away yeah. or depression go away. And, and, um, you know, people have had a good reasons to be depressed over the last few years, right? Absolutely. The pandemic and, and uh, just some of the horrific things that they've seen go on in the, in this nation. Uh, people are confused. They're depressed. Um, anxiety, a lot of anxiety, right? So it, it's not going to go away. So I think the best thing we can do in law enforcement is better equip our officers on how to respond to that and understand that we cannot do this alone. It, mm -hmm. it takes a village, right? So we really do need to partner uh, with our stakeholders in the community to find out, you know, what sort services are truly available that we can bring to the community and not just try to uh, put a bandaid on these issues because it really does come down to the back door, right? What, what happens once this patient gets ready to leave that facility? After Absolutely. Been, That's right? when the real so, work begins. 
Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, you know, we can only do so much from a 911 response at the front door, but it really does take continuity of care and wraparound services at the back door to, to get sustainable help. Yeah. And and there's always a question of funding. You know, I mean, who's going to who's going to pay for it? And that's always the question, correct? Yeah. And it's interesting, right, because I believe in like this world of balance right? we had the pandemic come, which caused all these problems uh, with with the depression, and the anxiety and the uncertainty. But then with that in the back on the back side of that came all these um, American Rescue Plan dollars um, to cities and counties. And I know just where I where I live in Bear County, uh, there was a total influx of over seven hundred thirty million dollars in, in COVID relief money and over one hundred thirty six million dollars of that was earmarked for mental health. Yeah. So that, I mean, San Antonio Bear County did a good job of saying, hey, we want to we, we want to make this a priority and take care of our community. So counties and cities receive this type of funding that they have never seen before and will never probably see again. And it's interesting in what so many uh, agencies and departments are doing with this money because it's been extremely busy uh, with departments calling to try to get some grant funding and build these types of uh, approaches yeah. for uh, an alternative type of response for community members. Yeah. Yeah. And and again, doing so many great things. You're an author, you're a speaker, you got a poster behind you, Ernie and Joe crisis <laughs> cops, which is an award-winning show an HBO uh, documentary series that uh, was on a while ago, but it's, it's an amazing show for the listeners. Never seen it. You got to check it out. Uh, Ernie and Joe do an amazing job. What, how did that come to fruition, brother? I mean, how did that, how did that show start? I mean, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so in 2008, we finally got a mental health unit started in San Antonio. It was me and one other officer for 2 million people, right? We can do this. <laughs> um, so with that development of a new unit came a little bit of local exposure, some news, some media, well, that would trickle out to other um, networks. And we had a writer by the name of Ann Snyder come down and do a ride along. And she wrote an article for the Atlantic called policing with velvet gloves, right? Pretty nice yeah. title. And she did a ride along and said, you know, these guys are like, well, they're cops, but they're, they act like social workers. It's kind of weird. You gotta, you know, they have a different paradigm. approach, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, she's, she, uh, knew, a lady in Connecticut by the name of Jen McShane, who is a director and producer of Ernie and Joe Crisis Cops, and said, "Hey, you ought to go down to San Antonio and do a ride along with these two these two dummies. Like they're doing they're doing something <laughs> different down there." So I get a phone call from Jen, and she goes, "Hey, I'm a I'm a filmmaker from Connecticut. I've got a lot of family in law enforcement, NYPD, and uh, my friend Ann Snyder. I'm like, yeah, I know Ann. Uh, she said I should come down and do a ride along. So I'm like, okay. So I tell my partner Joe, I'm like, hey. Uh, Jen McShane, I just got off the phone with her. She's going to be coming down doing a ride along. Well, she shows up like no film crew, no sound crew. She pulls out her phone and like starts following us. And I'm like, what in the world is this? Right. But, but there's beauty to this because she really just wanted to capture without um, overreaching what we did on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. And, and after the very first call, she was like, no, there's, there's a story here. And I'm like, well, why did you decide that? And it was a call that we went to involving a gentleman that lived at a group home that was having uh, homicidal ideations. He wanted to stab and kill uh, the group home manager. So we talked to him for a little bit in the front yard, let him smoke a cigarette and said, hey, you know, based on on these thoughts um, of hurting, of wanting to hurt somebody else, you know, you, you got to admit, you know, that you, you probably need to talk to somebody and, and you know, kind of have a little bit of time to decompress. He's like, yeah. yeah. I said, all right, well, let's let's run over to treatment center. I'll get you signed in and, and we'll get you rolling. And he's like, okay. 
and he looked at our car and it's an unmarked car, but <laughs> you can yeah, tell. Yeah. All right. yeah. It's a, it's a Ford Explorer. And he's like, well, I'm not going to ride in the back of a police car. And I'm like, that's cool. You want to ride up front? He's like, yeah, I'll ride up front. I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll jump in the back. So as we're all getting in the car, Jen kind of grabs me by the arm and pulls me because she'd been following us. And she yeah, yeah. pulls me by the arm and says, what are you doing? I said, uh, we're going to go to a treatment <laughs> facility and, and I'm going to talk to a counselor and we can get him signed in. He goes, no, no, no. You're letting him ride up front. I said, yeah. She goes, and you're going to ride behind the cage. I'm like, yeah. She goes, what happens if he attacks Joe? And I'm like, that's Joe's problem. Yeah, like, joke. I, like I'm, <laughs> I'm totally Joe can safe. take care like, of himself. Joe's yeah, arm. I mean, yeah. I mean, we, we searched. I mean, we didn't have any weapons. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. You know, we treat them with dignity and respect. Everybody we have, you know, we treat with dignity and respect. Yeah. Uh, it's a gentleman that was um, having some thought processes that were dangerous, you know, and and admitted that he wanted to go to talk to somebody. So she goes, this would have never happened, like, up in the northeast side. Like, no, it was handcuffs ask, and, tell, and take kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly, Patrick. So um, that's that's kind of how it started. And then three years of filming uh, happened. It was, uh, and during that time, you know, we had three suicides on the police department. So the film kind of took yeah. um, its own path because... Without overreaching, Jim did not want to overstep. At first, she asked, hey, can I come to a roll call and see how y'all talk to these officers about it? And we're like, no way. Like, this is family. Yeah. No. And she was like, okay, that's fine. I, I get it. But she really talked about the trauma that happens to the officers on the job, which was not really what the film was supposed to be about. It was about this alternative approach to community members. Yeah. But that camera then turned inward behind the badge and said, hey, you know, these officers go through a very difficult time and this is why. So they started to highlight Joe's life and kind of what he was going through at home. Um, for You know, he was going through a divorce and child support and dealing with his own uh, PTSD. And then they showed, you know, all, all the things going on in my life as well. So, sure. uh, the, yeah, the film won an Emmy Award and uh, got it got nominated for two, won one. And we were in the running for a Grammy for a little while until we got booted out. But the film did extremely yeah. good and it's still it's amazing. Used yeah, it's been seen by over, um, I'm see over 80,000 uh, different, um, is either agency or officer, I don't know. You get these numbers and they all yeah. just start scrambling in your mind. But <laughs> police departments around the nation have been using this really oh, to bring yeah. awareness, you know, not only to their own agency, but to what, you know, what type of approach we can do better to the community. Yeah, I, I mean, I love it. I mean, I, I remember watching one episode where you had, you and your partner had this guy in court and he wouldn't leave the court. I don't. I, I mean, there's so many episodes. I, I I don't know if you know which one I'm talking about, but you guys. That's what I love about it. But you you took. I mean, without compromising officer safety, because that's the first. What officer safety? No, you guys are tact. You know, you're you're having you have your tactics in mind, but you're treating people with respect. And I remember watching this episode. Most people just want to be heard, right? I mean, they just want to be heard. They want an outlet, and you guys take time to just listen to people and convince people for the most part to get some treatment because that's really what it matters does that mean no force is ever going to be used absolutely not but i, I just love your approach um and, and it's a lot different from when i mentioned ask tell and take i don't know what you guys called it when you were coming up but yeah I, i'm going to ask you once i'm going to tell you and then i'm going to take you yeah. i mean that was the model that i grew up most of the most of my law enforcement career it just doesn't work that way anymore in certain circumstances maybe but most yeah. of the time you can de-escalate, you know, we have time on our side, you know, so I'd rather talk a person into a pair of handcuffs and going, you know, compliantly than, than do the other, you know what I mean? 
Yeah, what the interesting um part about that scene in the in the movie um and you're right it took place in a courtroom he just kind of wandered in there yeah he just wandered um, in there. <laughs> yeah and the, you know the judge everybody's like oh, who's this guy and he's um you know he's he's very paranoid that people yeah. are after him and he yeah. hasn't slept in days um which we recognize as one of two things or the two combining into one which is a drug-induced psychosis sure. or uh just strictly uh mental health psychosis so uh you know talking to him and, and letting him feel safe was one thing um, like you said, they want to be heard, but you know what else, Patrick? They want to be loved. Yeah, right? exactly. Uh, I, I can I can say probably fairly confidently that if you're living in the United States and with a mental illness and you've ever had any kind of contact with the police, there's a possibility it's been in some type of negative fashion. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. I'm just, I'm not going to stick my head in the sand and say that does not happen. So knowing that and understanding more about what true mental health challenges are um you learn to take on a different type of approach and you really try to make that connection instead of worrying about the correction of the issue what going on by focusing on the person and not the problem absolutely and that's how you create rapport and empathy and connection right um so yeah very interesting scene i'm glad you brought that up because, uh, <laughs> that one that one we catch a lot of crap from about hey you sat down like that's oh, not tactically so okay. oh, yeah i know i get it oh, okay get it. but 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 you you guys are cops you know, I mean, you guys are trained and yeah, I don't, I don't get into the, I mean, there's always somebody, out, oh, tactics. And I'm not trying to downplay that. I get that officer safety, but you're trying to help people too. Right. You know, and, and the one thing that I didn't realize until I had my own struggles is I am much more empathetic to people, law enforcement or not, who, who are suffering now, because there's a lot of people we were talking before we started. There's a lot of people out there. You mentioned the pandemic, all this other stuff going on, prices through the roof, inflation, you name it. Sure. And it's hitting people at every different direction. And a lot of people are just feeling helpless, you know, and, and they're developing these, these mental health challenges. And, and, and I'm just more, more empathetic to people now who are, who are struggling, haven't been there myself. So, yeah. And, and, you know, for the, for the, for your listeners, you know, although police departments and agencies are trying to build better approaches uh, to the community that that call in with mental health crises. You know, we are very fortunate that on July 16th, 988 came online mm -hmm. and rolled out nationwide as the as the three-digit uh, helpline, crisis line, suicide hotline, whatever you want to call it. But it gave people an option other than 911 because not everybody that calls 911 needs a police officer to sure. show up, right? And when they do show up, who knows what the outcome could possibly be, right? It could be very good to very bad. But, it, you know, I'm glad to see that there's been enough um, priority and emphasis placed on people's well-being in the community that they would, that the federal government would step up, have the states own and take responsibility for the 988 call center um, and give people an alternative uh, sure. to 911. So that that's just rolled out. You know, it's got a lot of fine tuning to go through, but, you know, give us some time and, and we're going to work it out and at a national level. And, and hopefully that that becomes a very uh, a number that's utilized and helps a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the hardest thing is you, you know, Joe, and probably listeners is getting people. They're so conditioned to to call nine one one for for everything, you know, everything. There's a there's a squirrel in my yard. Call nine one one. So it's it, it's it'll be hard. But I but I but I agree with you. There'll, it'll be a shift, hopefully, to to nine eight eight, and people won't utilize nine one one for for everything, you know, because I think there's. 
you know, people think, well, once the cops show up, you know, somebody's in trouble. And that's not the case. You know, I mean, a lot of times, I mean, half the stuff I went to were, was non-criminal in nature. It was it was helping people in crisis. It was civil stuff. So it's it's good to see that the federal government is stepping up. And now we have that resources. You know, you said something interesting, right? Over the half the calls you went to were civil stuff, right? Yeah. I wish I wish they'd put that in the recruiting pamphlets for police departments, <laughs> right? Instead, they show them coming and repelling out of a helicopter. Do a bearcat, yeah, you know, SWAT. SWAT team. Yeah, you know, and they're, they're really, I mean, what kind of message are you sending to those that you're trying to recruit? Like, where's the picture of an officer with his arm around another officer with the caption of, hey, we're going to get through this together. Yeah, like, That's the reality of this job. It, it really, truly is. Like, that's the 1% in the recruiting pamphlets. What you see is what those officers do. The true reality is, like you said, we're responding to a lot of um, civil types of disturbances where people just have lost their ability to cope in a situation mm-hmm. and just need somebody to come in and help kind of stabilize it and, and yeah. calm the situation down. And, and, sometimes less, you know, less is more and good training and, and understanding of procedural justice and crisis intervention. It, you, you can bring that approach to people where they won't be scared. And we have to build the gap that has been caused here over the last few years between law enforcement and community. We've got to build that trust back. And I think in the way that we respond and approach in a different alternative way, will help do that over time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many, so much training out there, uh, Ernie, you know, with their CIT and other things for for officers uh, to have, I remember going through CIT years ago, and it was it was good training, and that's crisis intervention training. Doesn't make you a therapist, but it it kind of brings awareness and gives you some training on how to talk to people in crisis and how how to deal with those types of situations. Again, it's not the catch all, but it it was good to see departments and there's other training out there, but I, I went through that. It's good to see departments adopting those types of, of training, uh, you know. Um, you know, modalities for, for their officers, because the reality is, like you said, I mean, it's not getting any better, unfortunately. I mean, we're going to more and more of these calls and not only uh, is the community impact, uh, impacted by it, but internally the officers are struggling too. And in turns, they take it home. Yeah. They take it home. Their families. Right. And then before you know it, we wonder why the suicide rate is so high in law enforcement or the divorce rate yeah. is so high or, you know, it, it, it just it's it just seems like it continues on. And what I loved about crisis intervention training as being one of the instructors was, um, you know, because it was hard for me to buy into it when I was sent to the training. Right. I didn't want to go. But after hearing um, a family member tell her story and there's power in story. Right. That's why your your podcast do so sure. well. Sure. Um, is because um, I heard her tell her story about her son and it really drew me in and. I was like, man, I got to do, you know, I got to do something to help this lady, but she's not alone. And that's really what changed my career path into mental health. But for the officers, what I found, Patrick, were the ones that were giving us the most pushback were the ones that in some factor were affected personally with something to do with mental health, whether it was a member of their family, a friend, a negative um, outcome that they had maybe while on duty, like something happened personally where they're like, I don't even want to hear about it. I want to talk about it. But by the end of the week, they're like, oh, I didn't know about all this. I didn't know about these resources. I didn't know that PTSD could uh, take time before it can be, you know, triggered. Like I didn't know all these things and they became our biggest advocates. And I can remember being at a a soccer game, watching uh, some of my buddies play. And one of the wives of one of the officers walked up and said, Hey, did you, what'd you do to my husband? And I'm like, I'm sorry. Like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. She goes, yeah, number whatever out there. 
I'm like, oh, so-and-so? She goes, yeah, like, he went to a class you taught. He was telling me about it when you came walking up uh, that you you taught this uh, this mental health class or something. I'm like, yeah, yeah. She goes, like, we have conversations now. He'll, yeah. he'll listen to me. Um, he connects with me so much better. And I'm like, wow, well, that's, you know, that's really great to hear because the true essence really is, it is de- de-escalation, but how do you get to de-escalation? By actively listening to somebody else Absolutely. and trying to uh, be empathetic to what the situation is. Absolutely. And, and we, as you know, Ernie, we, I mean, we have a hard time in this profession coming forward as officers, men and women, coming forward saying, look, I, I, I have a problem. I think the stat I saw a couple of weeks ago, 39% of first responders uh, in this country suffer from mental health addiction or both. And that's the number we know about. So the number is probably pretty high, much higher than that. Why is it, I mean, in your opinion, you get your finger on the pulse, you're all over the place, you're talking to cops everywhere. Why is it so hard? Is it is it a cultural thing within departments that officers don't come forward? They're, I, I think, Patrick, I got I'm gonna have to point the finger here, and I, I have to point it at leadership. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you can check the box and say, "Well, hey guys, we have an EAP program. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, we have a peer support program. We're providing things for you." But if they don't feel safe coming forward to use those resources, what good are they? Absolutely. Right? Ask officers, do a random poll. Do you feel confident that if you went to your chief, your lieutenant, whoever, and said, hey, I am really struggling right now with depression. I've I've actually had thoughts of suicide. I need some help. Do you think they would honestly feel safe? Like, Yeah, that, I would say, I would say probably a, a lot of them wouldn't, which is shocking to me in this day and age that we live in now where officer wellness, health and wellness is you know, it's pretty, it's pretty well known now. Uh, but it, it, it would, it would surprise me or wouldn't surprise me if most departments are still have that, you know, archaic, archaic mentality is okay. Just get back on the street, do your paperwork, you know, get back on the street, yeah. which surprised me, Ernie. I mean, people aren't flocking to law enforcement anymore. So why aren't we taking better care of our most important asset? And that's the human asset. Those right. are our, our men and women who serve. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And, and it's it's cliche that that healthy officers make for healthy communities, and but you know there are there are some really good leaders out there that have mm-hmm. taken steps and taken strides, you know. And I'll, I'll name drop Neil Gang out of yeah. Pinole, I was going to say Neil Gang, Pinole, California, doing there amazing work. Yeah, with the Asher model. Asher I mean, model. He's got a yeah the seven pillar approach to building a culture of wellness. Like that should be a national model for law enforcement agencies. Like look look what he's done. Look, look how his officers they don't leave. They stay there. They're they're healthy. They're happy. They they feel safe to say, I'm not okay. And their department says, and it's okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. And we're going to walk through you and we're going to be with you from rookie to retirement, like all the way through. We're going to help you with financial wellness. Um, just so many resources that that he gives to his officers to show that, hey, we, we are invested in you, like you said, human capital, right? We're invested in you and we care about not just you, but your family and the success of your family and your children, um, and that's what it comes down to. We're so good at helping people in the community, but we're not so good at helping ourselves no. internally. No, absolutely not. And again, I talk to a lot of cops. You do too. And and the hardest thing is is getting them to kind of put their their ego aside. And their biggest thing is their fear aside uh, of, of the unknown. But that's what you have to do. You have to take that step forward. I mean, it amazes me. I mean, cops do everything that most of the public can't do. They run into danger and everything else. But when it comes to their own mental health and well being, they don't do that for the most part. And they they linger in 
by themselves in silence with isolation. I know because I was there until I reached out and said, hey, I want to get better. But it's easier said than done. You know that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that is I mean, that is the number one barrier is stigma. You know, um, like, like I say, you know, if I came to you and said, hey, Patrick, you know, do you want to go bowling with me Tuesday night? And you said, man, I'd love to, Ernie, but I've got to go see my therapist on Tuesday night. I should, I should be like, hey, that's cool, yeah. man. Maybe a night that you're not busy, right? That, that's But now it's not- like, oh, my God, a therapist. You're, you're crazy. Right. I mean, But that shouldn't shock my conscience. This is why we have to normalize the conversation. I should be like, okay, cool. That's good that you're doing that. Good for you. And the last thing that needs to happen is I need to run back to roll call and be like, hey, guess what? I asked Patrick O'Bolin, but he's got to see a therapist. Like, look out. Like, that's crap. That should not happen. But that is what happens. And we've got to break that stigma. We've got to come together, you know, support each other because this job affects everybody differently. You could see we could be on the same call and it affects you differently than it affects me. Absolutely. Right. So why aren't we doing a better job of taking care of each other and quit acting like we're tough and wearing these masks when that's not our true representative self? Absolutely. Vulnerable and authentic. And I think that's where the healing begins. And we need the support from leadership. And I tell people all the time, Ernie, I mean, when I'm talking to them, I'm like, look, I don't mean to sound like an ass when I'm telling this, but I, I tell them, look, your problems are not unique. They're unique to you and they're, they're important to you. I'm not trying to mitigate that. But these are problems that other people, millions of other people have faced and they've overcome. You know, you know what I mean? So you're, yeah. you're, you know, okay, you're an alcoholic. That, that's horrible. And you're going through PTS or whatever. That's horrible. But other people have walked your path and, and they've, they've gotten better. You just got to take that step forward. Yeah, everybody's trauma is different, right? Absolutely. So everybody's approach, everybody's treatment, everybody's support system will probably look a little different. But you got to feel safe to come forward with that. You know, of course, there's understand if there's misconduct policy. That's issues, different. That's different. That's, yeah, different, that's different. And and you got to own that. And however that's going to be handled within your agency is fine. But if you truly are struggling because of something that was job related, you should be able to feel safe and come forward. Like anybody else would at almost any other job and say, hey, I, I got I need to decompress. I had something very uh, traumatic happen in my life. I need some time off. And they always have that kind of support. Not so much in law enforcement. In fact, after that call, you need to hurry up, clear that call and go to the next one. Next call. You're not you do not have time to think about it or process it. And when I retired in January of 2021, I finally had time to start to process. Like I didn't know how much I was carrying with yeah. me. Until I just broke down crying one day in the shower. My wife's like, are you okay? And I'm like, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't know why I feel like I'm feeling right now, but I'm extremely sad. Um, I'm having thoughts of all these different calls I went to. And I'm remembering a story um, that a, a lady was telling me about when her father committed suicide. I'm like, this is all hitting me at once. Yeah. And, um, you know, it took some time to decompress and do some um, inward looking to find out what do I need now to take care of me. And my wife's like, I'm I'm glad you finally saw this. And I'm like, yeah, families need to feel safe too. Families need to be able to say, Hey, you are not yourself lately. And we need to get some help. Like we've, we've got to do a better job, Patrick. Yeah. And, 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 and that's the thing. I'm gl- and I'm glad you mentioned families because the, not only do the first responders, uh, most of us suffer in some capacity or some way or shape or form, but it's also the spouses and the kids. And I think there's sometimes they're, they're put on the back burner you know, okay, they're over here, you know, we're focused on the first responder, but we got to spend more time focusing on those support systems that support the first responder, i.e. spouse, partner, whatever you want to call it, children, 
Because they're yeah. often the ones that are they're scarred. I, I think of, you know, back when I was a cop, how many things I missed in my kids because I was so wanting to do the overtime and all this other stuff. And the times I came back, I didn't want to talk about anything. I just needed to be alone for an hour. That affects people. You know, I mean, that affects yeah. a spouse uh, yeah. or, or a you, partner. You know, a few things on that. Man, you're all over this, right? Think how much time we spend polishing our boots before work. Uh, making sure our uniform is our name, like everything's got to be just right. We got to look good. How much time did I invest in my family that day to make sure, right, that my that I that I polished my wife, right, that I made her look and feel good? And yeah. you know, we we get so caught up in how much we love this job in this community, we miss something very very important. We miss the fact that this job can never love us back as much mm -hmm. as we love it. Absolutely. I think as, as soon as we truly understand that, we can take a deep breath, push back a little bit and say, I'm always going to go into my job and do it and do the best I can, but I'm not going to love it more than my family. Yeah. Right? I've got, you know, because at the end of the day, that is your support system. Yeah. The department's going to run and I'm not trying to encourage people to go out there and quit. I'm just saying the department's going to survive without you when you're gone. They're going to have somebody to replace you, hopefully, you know, and, and it's going to, it's going to miss, not mess a beat. Why aren't we talking about this more, Ernie, at the front end of somebody's career? Why aren't we talking more about this in academies, on the state lab, municipalities? You know, when 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 young officers or young cadets are in the academy, I understand there's post requirements, and there's hours and all this other stuff. Why aren't we spending more time? Somebody like you come in and say, look, Ernie Stevens, he's been there, done that. He's doing great things. He's going to talk to you about mental health and keeping keeping yourself mentally fit. You know, on the beginning, it's always we're, we're so reactive to everything. And I understand yeah. that's the nature of the job. But well, why think are about we what, doing stuff at the beginning? Well, think about what that remember when you went through the police academy, right? You got out, you got yeah. in the car with your field training <laughs> officer. What do he tell you? Forget all that crap. Yeah, forget all that you. crap you learned. But I think we've come a long way as far as awareness and mental health among first responders. I just yeah, I, yeah, I know we, what you're saying, because that's that's true. Yeah, we have. And, and I also always advocate like, why aren't we bringing the family members in at the beginning when when you're either in the academy, let them know what they're truly about uh, to get themselves involved in um, the long hours, the extra jobs. Um, you know, it just it never ends. It yeah. is a never ending cycle. And the families, they don't know really what to look for. They just know, hey, my loved one's not the same. Something's going on. He came home physically or she came home physically but they never came home mentally after yeah. that shift. Yeah. Something happened. And what we have to keep in mind too, Patrick, is every night that I would go to work, like my wife went on a ride along and didn't even know it because when I would come home, bang, you know, I would let it talk about it sometimes, talk about the, the, the filth I saw, the, the anger, the rage I saw, and then catch myself going, why am I putting her through this, right? But it was like she was going on a ride along with me every night because we would, we would talk about things. Yeah. Not everybody does that, right? Some people come home and don't talk about it and completely disconnect. Uh, we we had a little bit of a different type of relationship, which I don't know if that was the most healthy thing to do now that I look back at it. Yeah, yeah. But, but you know, a spouse that can stay with you after being in this field for so long, I mean, that is a strong person uh, because when I, I was divorced a couple of times and a lot of it was due to I'm not blaming anything, but me, obviously, it was due to me, but it was the career and it just eats you up. And and I tell people, you're going to, you're going to get damaged in this career mentally, you yeah, know, hopefully they, not they, too bad physically, but you're, it's going to damage you. It's not TV. We're not kicking indoors all the time and everything's Hollywood. And 
it's not like that. No, it's not. And, and like you said earlier, we really do need to set these officers up for success early on um, because on average, they're going to see, according to statistics, about 188 traumatic events over a 20 year period, right? Mm -hmm. um, where the general public might see one or two yeah. at most in a 20 year period. So what does that do to the mind over time? You, you really become desensitized to almost anything that would shock the conscience of anybody else. Absolutely. And, and and that's dangerous. That's dangerous for yourself and that's dangerous for your family and your friends. It's dangerous for the community that you serve because people are calling for assistance and you show up, you're like, really, you're calling for this? And you're so desensitized because you've done this so long. Um, you're like, I can't believe y'all couldn't figure that, you know, and it becomes uh, just this, the disconnect again yeah. between the community and, then, and law enforcement. And then there's disconnect and then there's sometimes there's personnel issues and discipline issues because you're just don't give a shit anymore. And, and, I mean, it just, it, one thing's, you know, leads in, uh, to another. And, but so, I mean, just, you got to take care of yourself and I know that's cliche and you got to, but, but you do, you have to take care of yourself, uh, not only physically, but, but mentally and, and learn to come forward, uh, when, when you're, and there's so many resources out there, Ernie. I mean, there's really, I mean, there's resources at not only the general public's fingertips now, but, but especially law enforcement, there's so many, so many great programs out there and resources that you can tap into. Yeah, there are. I mean, there's, you know, there's apps. Uh, some departments are providing the apps that officers mm -hmm. can click on at two in the morning and, uh, you know, make an appointment with a, a vetted therapist. Anonymously. Anonymously, right? Um, was, I've seen one app uh, that actually provides different types of resources. Let's say financial stability, marriage, um, counseling, uh, how to stop smoking, whatever. And then at the end of the month, the company sends a report to the agency to say, hey, anonymously, 45% of your of the people that use this app this month clicked on financial wellness. So let's bring in a speaker, maybe at the next in-service training, uh, to do a class about financial wellness and mm -hmm. what these officers need to do, right? Because that causes all kinds of stress. In oh, yeah. Itself. So I, I love that the, the, the foresight to some of this technology is really trying to catch it based on what officers are, you know, inputting on, on their, on their apps to find out like, where's the need for these resources. So there, there's good stuff up there. It's still, I think it comes down to, do I feel safe enough stepping forward and saying, I need, I need something, I need some help yeah. and I don't know where to go. Yeah. And one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was to uh, actually, my ex-wife told me this is you have to get friends outside of law enforcement because most people are good people. But we get this kind of myopic view of the world. I know I, I was there and I, I don't know if you were. I, I imagine at some point uh, everybody's a criminal. Everybody, if, the, if nobody has a badge or a star, you're a criminal. I don't trust you. And one of the best things Ernie I ever did was make friends outside of law enforcement. And then I started to realize most people are good people. Yeah, it's that certain percentage we deal with on a day to day yeah. basis. But that really opened my eyes. And now that's not a dig on law enforcement. All right. No, 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 not at all. No, I not. But, I know not you, but for the listener, oh, he hates. No, I, I, you love cops, but you got to get <laughs> friends outside of the profession. That's gonna. That's kind of even you out, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean the calls that the police and in in the sheriff's department are responding to are nine one one calls where people are in crisis, and you're seeing the worst part of, you know, yeah, uh, what society has, right? But those are the people calling. And what about all the people that don't call on a day to day basis, right? Um, I had a huge uh, support system through the church. I had a lot of friends oh, yeah. uh, that, that we go to church with that, you know, when we get together, they're talking about 
their kids and school. And like, I don't have to bring up any stories to try to impress anybody. <laughs> right. It's like, Oh man, I get to sit here and actually listen to conversation. Absolutely. And Hey, how do you smoke your brisket? Oh, I put mustard on it. What <laughs> yeah. the hell? Like really? Oh, it's a good normal conversations. Agent. Yeah. And I'm like, this is beautiful. We don't, we don't have to talk about that car that flipped over. Remember when that girl yeah. got it, you know, it's um, it's yeah. good. And it's good for the family too. It's, it's very healthy. So I'm glad you brought that point up. <laughs> well, talk about a new, new projects you got going on, brother, unless you can't, you, I know you got books out there. Uh, you're yes. always on the go. <laughs> yeah. Anything else in the hopper, Ernie? Uh, there's some things coming as soon as I get the top thumbs up. Uh, yeah, man. Top, but good, good things are coming with the documentary. Um, that information will be released shortly. Uh, the book, uh, Mental Health and De-Escalation, I wrote Love with uh, Nick Rosario. Yeah. yeah, that went number one on Amazon. Um, it was fantastic. Uh, just did some international shipments out to Belgium, Canada. That's awesome, bro. That's doing good. And right now, um, I am really super loving my new job at the Council of State Governments. Like this yeah. is giving me an opportunity to have this this far reach into smaller agencies that just don't have access. And other resources. Be, yeah, so, you know, they tap into the Bureau of Justice Assistance, they get the grant money, and then we go in there and give them technical assistance and get them set up for success through planning and implementation. So that's huge because for me, Patrick, this was a dream of mine. Uh, after I went through the training in 2003, I was like, man, I want to see the police department get a mental health unit. And then in 2008, San Antonio got one, like seventh largest city. Yeah. We have two officers riding together. That's one mental health unit, but it's a start. And now we're seeing it across the nation. Absolutely. And I get to be a part of that. So that's amazing. That is, yeah, that is fantastic. It's very fulfilling. You, you know, you, you still got your toe in the water of, of law enforcement. And I'm glad you brought up smaller agencies because I think smaller agencies get get lost in the shuffle sometimes. But what people don't, I know you know this, Ernie, but a, a lot of people don't realize that smaller agencies make up the bulk of law enforcement agencies in this country. Not every department's an LAPD or a Dallas mm -hmm. or Houston or whatever. So I'm glad you're working a lot more with smaller agencies that might not have the resources, you know, yeah, to, to go out there and get these types of, of programs. Yeah. The, the average size of a, a police department in the United States is about 12 officers. Yeah. So, I mean, put that into context and then think, wow, could I even, even send an officer to an 40 hour training uh, yeah, with the staffing like, and all this yeah, other what's stuff? What's that going to be like? So yeah, you see departments come together, you see them build these regional task force, you see them get, um innovative and use tablets that they can get on scene with and then do an assessment telepsych uh with a, a provider you know within their community um i've seen drones delivering medications on indian reservations now like yeah it's amazing this is fantastic uh, some of the things we're seeing it's just it's mind-blowing yeah the, the, uh, the, the good thing about technology there's bad about technology but that that's the good part of it so we're able to reach with with, uh, you know, technology and internet and, you know, software and drones and all kinds of other stuff, we're able to reach people we normally couldn't reach you know, yeah. back in yeah, the day true. when you and, and I started, because we're old. Yeah, they, <laughs> you know, and I will say this, one of the, one of the toughest ones are the Native American communities. Yeah. Um, I was out in um, Rio Doso and I went and spoke at a, um, a conference there for 22 different tribal nations. And the Native American population is is very um, underfunded when it comes to anything, right? Uh, sovereign, don't even have internet services. So when you see communities come together and try to learn how to collaborate, uh, whether it's a small community uh, out in rural type of America, or you're looking at Native American communities, like this is where, like this is where the rubber meets the road. Uh, and we're really, we're reaching people we've never been able to reach before. So this is fantastic. Absolutely. 
I love it, Ernie. If people want to reach out to you, brother, I know you're all over the internet. What's the easiest way? And everything will be linked up in the show notes. What's the easiest way to find you, brother? Uh, LinkedIn usually is, is yeah. a pretty good contact. Uh, Twitter, eStevens0845 is my Twitter handle. You'll never guess what my badge number was, right? <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Please reach out, contact me, and, and let's continue this conversation. Uh, my heart really is like you, Patrick, for officer wellness, resiliency. Yeah. Um, it, because we love. We love what we do in law enforcement. We truly do. And uh, I know the media can spin it sometimes and send the wrong message, but... Um, I, I would have given my my life completely, you know, for my community that served if I needed to. I would have hesitated. To, and I know many people can say that. Yeah. But also needed to be well doing it. So yeah. uh, Amen. For, for the officers listening, please take care of yourselves. And for the family members, thank you for sticking next to us. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. And, and uh, most people support law enforcement. You know that, Ernie. I mean, I, I tell people, turn off the media and get off. I mean, yeah, it's you know, some of us have to be on social media, but the majority of people out there, vast majority support law enforcement. Absolutely. And thank you to the community members. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It all starts with them. Thank you, my brother. I appreciate it. God bless you. Thank you for your service. And uh, yeah, I'm anxious to hear get you back on uh, down the road to hear what great things you're doing. Huge announcement, man. You'll be the first to know. <laughs> thank you, brother. Thank you. Such a great interview with Ernie. He's such an amazing individual giving back continuously to make the world a better place because that's what it's about, folks. If you love the audio version of this, head over to CJ Evolution Podcast YouTube channel to see this amazing video with Ernie Stevens.